Amen. Thanks for your worship. Go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 13. That's where we're going to hang out today, Judges chapter 13. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so that you can follow along. Uh, If you have our Journey Church International app, you can fire that up. Everything on the screens will be in your handheld device so that you can follow along. If you are snowed in and watching online today, thank you for hanging out with us from your home today. I've been texting several families all day long that are doing church together as a family at home. If you're one of those, thank you for being with us. We're in week three of a series that we're calling Family Stronger. And here's our goal in this series, to help your family get stronger by doing two things, by battling the brokenness that exists in and around your family, and by refusing to quit when things get really, really hard. We've met some biblical families who have shown us how to do that. In week one, we met Cain and Abel. We saw the brokenness in Cain and Abel that also exists in us. But we saw their mom and dad, Adam and Eve, not quit, not give up on family when things got really hard, when things got really painful. Last week, Pastor Jonathan Robbins was in from North Carolina. He taught us how to conflict. He taught us the phrase, you before me. Uh, He taught us the phrase, being right with you is more important than being right. This week, all week long in text messages, back and forth with my men's group and my small group, We've been talking about that phrase and how it's impacted our life as we've tried to implement it. And this week, we're going to meet another broken family in the Bible who I think can help all of us spiritually. We're going to meet the family of Samson. You say, who is Samson? Samson was the 12th of 14 judges in Israel in a historical area known as the period of the judges, sandwiched between the conquest of the land under Joshua and the kings of the land that really began with King David after King Saul. We see that every leader in Israel was known as a judge. Almost everyone from Moses and Joshua to King Saul and King David that was a leader was known as a judge. In the book of Judges, There are 12 of them. Samson was the last. When we open 1 Samuel, we see the last two, Eli and Samuel. Before the kings came, Samson was a king. He was a judge. He was known for his physical strength and his spiritual weakness. He was known for being really strong physically and really weak spiritually. We're going to learn his story a little bit, but we're going to see his parents had something to do with that. We're going to learn today that the passive parenting of Samson's parents left him with little room for spiritual success as an adult. The passive parent, uh, parenting of Samson's parents left him with very little room for spiritual success as an adult. So you say, who is this message for today? Certainly it's for parents. If you're a parent in the room of children of any age, this message is for you. Let me tell you who it's best for. It's best for parents who have kids under the age of 12. You're going to learn the most that you can implement, implement without a lot of conflict If your kids are young, this may be a great day for you to learn about parenting. If your kids are teenagers, you might learn some things that if you tried to implement them are going to be hard. I mean, that's just the reality. If you've been parenting one way and your kids are now 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and you try to turn, it's going to be tough for you. If you're a parent of grown children, I'm just going to tell you from the offset, you might experience some regret today. If you have kids that are in their 20s or 30s and 40s, you may hear today's message and think, I see now where where maybe we could have done better. I don't want you to have regrets, but I do want you to learn. And maybe as a grandparent, you could do better. But really, this message could also be for anyone who wants to have spiritual impact. If you have a friend who you're trying to lead spiritually, this message can show you how to be proactive instead of passive. If you're a coach and you have some teammates 
that you're trying, or, or some kids on your team that you're trying to move spiritually. Today's message is going to show you how you can be proactive rather than passive. If you're in a marriage and you want to influence your spouse spiritually, today's message is going to show you how you can be proactive instead of passive. If you're a boss and you have some employees that you want to move spiritually, or you're an employee and you have a coworker who you'd like to influence spiritually, today's message is going to show you how you can be proactive rather than passive. We're going to learn all that through meeting this broken family of Samson in Judges chapter 13. Before we do that, my goal today is not just that you learn about Samson's family, it's that you learn about your own. So could you bow your heads with me? And before we dig into scripture today, would you just ask God from your heart to heaven to speak to you about your family and what he would want you to hear and see about your family spiritually? God, we know that every time the people of God study the word of God, the spirit of God, has the ability to speak to our hearts about our lives. So speak to us through Samson's family about our family. So God, we might see how by being proactive in our parenting, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our leadership, uh, God, that we can have more impact for your kingdom. That's our prayer. Speak to us today, Lord. We're listening. We see things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Judges chapter 13, we're going to read through verse 14, but then keep your Bible open because we're going to Eventually work our way to Judges 16, reading the story of Samson and his family. Here's how it starts. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man from Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you're going to become pregnant and have a son. Now then drink no wine or other fermented drink and don't eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. The story of Samson's family begins with his parents. Almost an entire chapter just about his parents before we even get to him. And as we look at Samson's story, his story begins, number one, with clear spiritual direction for his parents. Samson's story begins with his mom and dad, but not just his his mom and dad physically, his mom and dad spiritually. Samson's story begins with clear spiritual direction to his parents, direction for his purpose. God said, here's what your boy's going to grow up and do, and direction for the plan. Here's how that will be accomplished. I don't know if you saw it, so let me point it out. Samson's purpose would be to defeat the Philistines. 
The Israelites had been under Philistine rule for 40 years. Probably Manoah and his wife's entire lifetime, they had been under the oppression of the Philistines. And they lived very near to the Philistines. Let me show you how this would work in Israel. If you go to Israel with me, I'll take you to Judges chapter 13. We'll be there together. The Philistines were a coastal people that made most of their money in their economy from the sea. They had five capital cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. These were Philistine cities along kind of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. What the Philistines wanted were the plains of Israel because that's where the food was. They needed food for themselves. They wanted food to export. If they could have the plains of Israel, they could harvest the food and they could sell it all over the Middle East by selling across the Mediterranean. And they wanted the mountainous region of Israel because that's where it was safest to have cities. A city built right on the sea had zero protection. So they were constantly at battle with Israel. And right in the middle, we see this little town called Zorah where Samson's parents lived. If you go to Israel with me, we'll get off the plane. We'll go to the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. After we're there for an hour, hour and a half, we'll head back to our hotel, but we'll stop at a gas station in Bet Shemesh to get some drinks and some food and just to kind of revive ourselves a little bit from the plane ride. And as we sit at the gas station, you look over kind of an area of Israel that is the ancient Zora. It basically was the ancient vineyards of Israel. It's the Napa Valley of Israel. That's where Samson was from. And the Philistines wanted it because they wanted the food and they wanted the resources to sell. And Israel had been in bondage to them for 40 years, which meant most of what Manoah probably ever planted and harvested in his life was stolen by the Philistines. And now God says, your son is going to rescue not just you, your son is going to rescue all of Israel. I mean, what a purpose. What a great purpose that your son would be kind of your savior economically. What a great purpose that your son, the whole purpose of his life would be to help people who were oppressed. Moses had done that. Joshua in Israel had done that. Gideon early in Judges had done that. A few hundred years later, David would do that very near to where Samson would be born. But now it's Samson's turn. And here's how he would do it. Here was his plan. God said his purpose is to defeat the Israelites. His plan is going to be this. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth to death. That is going to allow him to have my power in his life to fulfill his purpose. Now, you should be thinking, hopefully, what's a Nazarite? What's a Nazarite? I've never heard of a Nazarite. In verse 7, we find out that Samson was to be a Nazarite from his birth to his death. Very, very rare. Because a Nazarite was somebody who just took a vow for a period of time to consecrate their life to the Lord. A 40-day vow, a 90-day vow, a one-year pledge. A Nazarite was someone who said, I really want God's power in my life, so I'm going to take a vow for this season, and I'm going to consecrate my entire life to the Lord. We learn about it in Numbers chapter 6. In the book of Numbers, we learn how to worship God, but God says, if anybody ever wants to do anything extra... He told Moses, here's how they can take a vow and really have my spirit in their life. He says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord. The Nazarite must not go near a dead body. 
Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of the dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. God says a Nazarite is three things. Number one, it's somebody who doesn't eat, drink, or touch anything from the vine. This, doesn't, this isn't a prohibition against alcohol. This is a kind of a withholding of even grape juice. They weren't allowed to eat grapes. They weren't allowed to eat raisins. They were not allowed to have anything from the vine. Secondly, they were not allowed to touch anything dead that would make them unclean. Ceremonially unclean mean they would have had to stay outside the camp. They would have not been able to go near the tabernacle. So they weren't allowed to touch anything that was dead. And lastly, they weren't allowed to let a razor cut their hair. A Nazarite meant three things. Don't touch anything from the vine. Don't touch anything from dead don't cut your hair. Samson had a clear purpose. He's going to come and defeat the Philistines. He had a clear plan. I'm going to help him do it because he's going to be a Nazarite. Samson, number one, had a clear, his parents, a clear spiritual direction. But number two, we see when we start studying his life, he had a clear spiritual distraction. He struggled a little bit trying to be who God wanted him to become. His parents were given clear spiritual direction. He's going to conquer the Philistines. He's going to do it by being a Nazarite. Samson, he struggled with that a little bit. He had some spiritual distractions. His purpose, defeat the Philistines. His plan, be a Nazarite. But his pattern was the pattern probably of 90% of kids that ever live in a household. His pattern was this. He was going to test the boundaries that God had set for him, sadly, without pushback from his parents. And he would fail his ultimate test and eventually lose all of his spiritual power. His pattern was God said, you're supposed to live this way. And Samson said, "Mm, I'm going to try it another way. And never once did his parents kind of say, no, you can't can't do that. Never was there parental pushback. And eventually he failed his ultimate test and he lost his spiritual power. Say, how did that happen? Let's read the story of his life. We're in Judges chapter 14 now. Samson is grown up. He's supposed to be fulfilling his purpose. But here's what we read. So Samson went down to Timnah. And he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman from Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her her for me. She is the right one for me. We see Samson here sleeping with the enemy. Which is interesting because at this point in his life, his parents were engaged a little bit in the decision-making process. And here's where we begin to see passive parenting get off track. See, Samson's parents were told his purpose was to destroy the Philistines. But they were going to permit sleeping with the enemy if their son wanted it. You say, well, they said, I know you shouldn't do that. You're right. They did say you shouldn't do that. But as we read the rest of the story, we find out it was really more of a recommendation than a restriction. They didn't say, you can't do that. We won't allow you to do that. They didn't say your purpose was to defeat the Philistines, not to marry the Philistines. And we see the first of four passive parenting warnings in our text today. Or maybe it, for you, if you're not married, it's a, it's a passive Christian warning about somebody in your life you're watching kind of walk away and you're trying to figure out, do I do anything? Samson's parents gave recommendations against spiritual danger, but they didn't restrict access to it. They told Samson, well, you really shouldn't do that, but, it's, but you know... Do what you want to do. And there are too many parents today who, when it comes to the people their kids are hanging around with, 
They say stuff like, you really shouldn't be hanging around with that person instead of saying, you're not allowed to hang around with that person. Recommendations rather than restrictions. Who, when there are places in their life, they know that their kids could fail desperately spiritually. Instead of, uh, you know, they they say, listen, if you're going to go there, make sure you don't drink and drive. If you're going to go there, make sure you're not vaping. If you're going to go there, make sure you're not smoking pot. Instead of recommending what they should do, there are too many parents that aren't saying you're not allowed to go there. If those things are going on, you are not allowed to go to that place. There are too many parents who their kids are having pursuits that are dangerous for them spiritually. And instead of saying, if you're going to do that, you know, it could be really hard spiritually. They need to say, you're not going to do that because it's going to hurt you spiritually. I don't know any parents who would let their kids work a job that would cause them to flunk out of school. I don't know one in, in in our community that I'm close to. But I know a lot of parents who would let their kids work a job that might cause them to fail spiritually. I don't know very many parents who would let their kids play sports that would jeopardize them getting a high enough ACT score to ever get into a college. But I know parents who will let their kids play enough sports that maybe their kid is on the borderline of whether or not they'll ever grow up to love Jesus. Samson's parents knew what God wanted for their son. And instead of restricting access to what God said don't do, they just recommended that he didn't do it. You say, what happened? Let's keep watching. Go to verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah. His parents ultimately didn't say no. They just recommended against it. He did what he wanted to. Kids do often. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. That should stop all of us now who know what a Nazarite is. Because as we read this word right here, what's that word? Vineyards. All of us are thinking, what's he doing there? What's what's he doing there with his parents? I call this Nazarite strike one. As a Nazarite, Samson wasn't allowed to partake of anything from the vine. But here he is in a vineyard with his mom and dad. A mom and dad that should have told him, God's purpose for you and plan for your life does not include that. We're walking right into sin with him. Which leads us to passive parenting warning number two. Samson's parents were aware that the direction of Samson's life was clearly drifting from God's plan, but they refused to confront him on it. They kind of did the, you know, well, we're just going to love them and and walk with them. Uh, I hear so many parents say, I don't want to push spiritual things on my kids because they might rebel. And there is no Bible verse that supports that mentality. As a matter of fact, scripture says, if you will train your kids up in the way they should go when they're older, they won't depart from it. It doesn't say if you won't force anything on your kids, they won't rebel. There's no Bible verse in the Bible like that. And too many parents watch our kids walking into something that we know is not God's will for them. And we think, well, you know, I hate to force them further away. So I'll I'll just support them in their efforts to walk away from what God wants to do. That's what Samson's parents were doing. God told Samson's parents, he's to be a Nazarite. Go read how many times the word vineyard is used. He's not allowed to go there. And here he was with his mom and dad. But it gets worse. Let's keep reading in verse 6. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he didn't tell his mom and dad what he'd done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman and he liked her sometime later. When he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from a lion's carcass. Strike two. Nazarites weren't allowed to be in vineyards. Nazarites also weren't allowed to touch dead things. 
And here he is in a vineyard kicking around a carcass, eating from a carcass. As a Nazarite, Samson was not allowed to come into contact with anything dead that could make him unclean, which he did in a vineyard again. And what I find here is the parents' lack of engagement with Samson, where'd you get that? Samson, what's going on? Because we see passive parenting warning number three here. Samson's parents failed to ask tough questions or look deeply into his life at critical times. This would have been one of those critical times. Where have you been? Where did you get that? You say, why is that? Because he gave them some honey from a honeycomb. Now, Israel in the Old Testament is often called the land of milk and honey, but it's not honey from a honeycomb. Israel is known from the date palms, palm trees that grow there. And they make date palm honey from the dates that grow there that is very bitter. If you're ever eating in Israel, don't eat the honey. It's not very good. Honey from a honeycomb would have been very, very sweet. And any parent who would have eaten it would have said, where did you get this? Help me understand where you found it. We've never tasted anything like this. And watching your son, who was clearly already drifting from God's purpose in relationships... Drifting from God's boundaries in what God had called him to do, you would think if he'd been off for a little while and then brought something strange or foreign home, you would say, all right, let's sit down for a minute. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Where did you get this? They didn't ask any of those questions like that. We see his parents failed to ask tough questions, and they failed to look deeply into his life at critical times. Now, this is where we kind of learn how the Spirit prompts us to lead proactively in family in friendships, with our workers, with our marriage, with our friends. What do we do here? Here's three things that we need to understand. Concern for others should always prompt questions to them. When you're concerned about somebody and you don't know why, you need to start asking questions. Hey, I noticed you missed two or three days of work last week. Hey, I noticed you haven't been yourself. Hey, I noticed you haven't been on any social media. Hey, you've seemed down lately. Hey, you seem like you're really in a hurry lately. Concern should prompt questions. You say, I want to be proactive. I don't want to be passive. Anytime as a Christian you feel concern for someone, start asking questions. God has given you a reason to be concerned. Secondly, awareness of trouble must bring action to help. Anytime we realize someone is hurting, anytime we're aware that someone is drifting, anytime we're aware that someone is in trouble, awareness of trouble has to bring action to help. Unfortunately, here's what we normally do when we become aware of something in someone's life. Instead of talking to them about it, we talk to others about them. And here's the deal. If you're worried enough to talk about somebody's struggles, you should be talking to them about their struggles. If you're worried enough to tell someone at work that you're worried about someone else at work, you should be talking to someone else who you're worried about. If you're worried enough in your neighborhood to talk to one of your neighbors about another neighbor, you should go talk to the neighbor you're worried about. If you're worried enough in your family to call up your mom and dad and say, I'm worried about my brother and sister, you should be calling your brother or sister. If you're worried enough about your spouse that you're calling someone and saying, I'm worried about my husband or wife, you should be talking to your husband or wife. See, proactive leadership. In parenting and in Christian relationship means when you're aware of trouble, when you're concerned about somebody, you go to them and you start asking questions. You start taking action. You start helping. You don't sit back and think, Samson sure does appear to be throwing his life away. Hope that works out okay in the end. Because for Samson, it didn't. When we look at his parents who gave recommendations without restrictions, 
when we looked at his parents who let him drift from God without any confrontation, when you looked at his parents who failed to ask deep questions or look deeply into life when things seemed off a little bit, eventually we look at the end of Samson's life and we see a sad spiritual death for Samson. I mean, this story starts with so much hope, clear spiritual direction. He's going to defeat the Philistines. All he's got to do is walk with God as a Nazarite. Buffeted by a distraction, but but of course teens get distracted. Of course teenagers push boundaries. Of course new Christians try to figure out how far they can kind of stretch their Christianity, how serious God is about his truth. But for Samson, that led to a very sad spiritual death. To catch you up on the downward spiral of his life, he went down to marry the girl. They got engaged. They got to the day of the wedding and things went psycho. She ended up marrying his best man instead of him. He got mad and killed his best man and all of his friends. And then he lived for the next several years, basically hopping from town to town, bar to bar, brothel to brothel, drinking alcohol, being with prostitutes, getting angry, killing a bunch of Philistines. That was the only way he even came close to fulfilling God's will for his life. And eventually we find him in love with this lady named Delilah, another Philistine woman that he decided, we don't even see his parents in his life anymore, that he's going to marry. And one day she says, because she's being paid by the Philistine government, help me understand how you're so strong and how when you get angry and mad, you always seem to conquer Philistines wherever you go. And he said, oh, that's a secret I can't tell you. And she said, no, if you love me, tell me. And he said, okay, if you tie me up with brand new ropes, I'll lose all my strength and the Philistines could kill me in a heartbeat. So he falls asleep. She ties him up with new ropes and says, the Philistines are here. He snaps them and, you know, it was a big ruse. And she said, you know, you're making me look stupid. Really, what's your strength? If you love me, tell me. So, well, if they tie my hair, you know, down into a loom so that I can't move. If I don't have my hair, I don't have anything. If they tie my hair up and they attack me, boy, I have no power. And so she tied his hair up and, you know, said, Philistine, the Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he kind of jumped up and killed them all. And she said, now you've made me look like a fool. Honestly, what is the power of your strength? And in Judges chapter 16, 15 through 21, he says, here it is. Here's the only reason I'm able to do anything that I'm able to do. And we read this in Judges 16, starting in verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such an agony, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor's ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands after putting him to sleep on her lap. She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. One of the saddest lines in scripture, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in their prison. The man who was supposed to rescue all of the Israeli grain from the Philistines was now the one making it in the basement of their prison for the enemy. Nazarite, strike three. As a Nazarite for life, Samson wasn't allowed to shave his head as long as his life was dedicated to God. But here's the deal. After a slow drift away, clearly his life wasn't dedicated to God and his final decision was the worst one. But think about his mindset for a minute. Why would Samson have been afraid to shave his head? 
I mean, as a kid, his mom and dad must have told him his entire life. He knew enough to tell Delilah, you're a Nazarite. God's hand is on you. Here's God's purpose for you. Don't do these things. He knew that. Yet he walked into a vineyard with him. And he didn't lose his power then, so he must have thought, I guess God isn't really serious about his commands. I mean, I broke that one. No big deal. And then later, he would go back into the vineyard, and he would take honey out of a a dead lion's carcass, a, a, a dead body. And he would have to think as he gave it to his mom and dad. Here again, I don't think God's really serious about his rules. I mean, I was told if I did these things, I would lose the power of God, but I still appear to have the power of God. Why would he have thought as an adult after his parents, who were supposed to be leading him, his entire life never really shut down anything was doing. And, and after he had seemed to escape time and time again with his power, why would he have thought God was serious about anything until he shaved his head and woke up and realized the Lord had left him? We see a really sad warning here about passive parenting, our final one. And that's this. We can't allow our children to experience everything in life but a haircut by managing sin instead of confronting it and thinking one day that it won't ruin them completely. We can't allow our kids to experience everything but a haircut. We give recommendations but not restrictions, but they turn out okay. And we see them drifting, and we don't confront it, but it turns out okay. And then we just realize in our spirit things are off. We don't say anything, but it turns out okay until it doesn't. And they get a spiritual haircut that's really hard to come back from. That isn't just the story of Samson. It's actually the entire story of the book of Judges. The entire story of the book of Judges is a story about a generation of parents who forgot to raise a generation of children spiritually. It's what the entire book is about. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the book, the author of Judges says, here's what this book is about. It's a book about a generation of parents who forget to raise a generation of children spiritually who all walk away from God. That, that's kind of the theme of this book. It comes after Joshua. In the Old Testament, Joshua was a general in the Israeli army who kind of led the, the conquering of the promised land. He allowed Israel to be a nation and a place for the very first time. And he led well because when he died, everyone that he led kept leading spiritually. But that gap generation, the one in the middle, they kind of forgot to lead their kids. This is what Judges 2 verses 6 and 7 says. After Joshua had dismissed The Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. At some point, a generation stopped teaching their kids to be spiritually faithful. At some point, a generation got spiritually passive and a whole generation of people in Israel just kind of walked away. That is the story of this book. And folks, that can't be the story of our lives because we are generation three. Our parents were the generation of what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation ever, our World War II veterans. And that was a generation who leaned and believed deeply for the most part, in the things of God. And most of our parents, for those of us raised in church, most of our parents were raised on the backbone of that faith. 
And most of our parents, for those of us who are between the age of 35 and 55, most of our parents, for those of you who were raised in church, a lot of you were like me. The only drug problem I had is my parents drugged me to church like every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, like my entire life. Like that was a generation that just invested in their kids spiritually. But here we are, and I got to be honest, our generation is so busy, not bad, not evil, distracted. Our generation is so busy that if we are not intentional, we are going to lead a missing generation spiritually. Our generation is so busy that if we are not super intentional, we are going to forget to press into our kids the foundational things of Christianity. So this message really turns into a challenge to Christian parents who want to be strong. It turns into a challenge for Christian friends who want to be strong. It turns into a challenge for Christian siblings who want to be strong. It turns into a challenge for people who say, I've got someone in my life who I've been passive with spiritually, but I'm worried about where they are. What do I do? Four things specifically for parents, but it applies to anyone trying to influence someone spiritually. Number one, we have to make sure we don't raise a generation who only knows a version of Christianity where faith is only a priority when nothing else important is going on. We have to make sure in the busyness and distraction of our life that we do not raise an entire generation of people where they have this version of Christianity, where Christianity, we're serving other people, we're giving, we're going on mission trips, we're loving Jesus, we're being a part of a church is really, really important unless there are other things going on and then you can do those too. Because we live in a super distracted, super busy generation. And listen, if you're here today, I mean, I, I, I drove on the road. You drove, If you're here today, like I get that you are committed spiritually. If you brought someone under the age of five today in the cold wind and snow, like you get it. I, I, I get that you're here. I applaud you for your faith. Want us to try to get out and get in church. Some of you would like to be here. You're watching at home, but your entire family's watching, uh, is watching because Sunday is very important to you. You're just snowed in today, but there are others in our church who will catch us between Monday and Saturday this week because something else is going on today. And Sunday is for church only when there's nothing else going on. Sports, dance, work, lake, whatever. You get it. I had a friend this week who has a son who played minor league baseball. He played minor league baseball. He was a major league baseball chaplain for more than two decades. He's now a pastor And he sent me a screen grab of a tweet that he read this week that basically said, hey, like this is what we have to start telling the parents in our church. Here it is. Here's what he sent me. There is a .0296, which means one in 200,000 chance your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 100% chance your child will stand before Jesus. Get him to church. Like I say this because this is a sports guy. this This is a ball player. This is a guy whose kids were ballplayers. This is a guy who worked with dysfunctional ballplayers for more than two decades, and now he's a pastor. And he's saying, I'm watching parents who have a faith that is really important unless there's a game. And the averages, the averages tell us one should be more important than the other. Maybe it's not a game. Maybe it's a dance recital. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's whatever. You get the point. We got to make sure we're not raising a generation who only knows a version of Christianity where faith is only a priority when nothing else important is going on. Number two, we must be willing to restrict our children's access to sin and sin's access to our children. 
We have to. That's our job as parents. You know why I think the angel came back twice to Samson's parents? I think God told the angel, listen, Samson has a rebellious heart. If it's up to Samson, he's going to fail. So don't just tell his mom and dad once. Tell them twice because this kid is going to want to play in vineyards. And this kid is going to want to kick around the carcass. So go tell his mom and dad because without his mom and dad, he has no chance. Notice that God didn't send the angel to Samson's youth pastor. Wasn't his responsibility. He didn't send the angel to Samson's small group leader. Wasn't his responsibility. He didn't send the angel to Samson's Fellowship of Christian Athletes director or or Young Life leader at his school. He didn't send him to a coach or a teacher. He didn't send him to his friends. He sent him to his parents and said, It is your responsibility to proactively protect and lead your son spiritually. It's on you. And the parents somehow lost a willingness to restrict access to sin and sends access to our children. You say, my kids won't like me. You know, I like being friends with my teenager. I like being friends with their friends. Listen, they don't want to be your friend. They only act like that because they want your money. Like, like our teenagers, our teenagers don't want to be our friends. They have friends. They need parents. Our kids have friends. They need parents. Be willing every now and then to fight with your teenager because you're fighting for your teenager spiritually. They'll thank you when they're in their 20s and 30s. I promise you. Number three, we've got to learn to ask hard and uncomfortable questions when something seems different. Don't lay in bed and talk to your husband or your wife about your teenagers seeming off. Go open their door, sit down on the end of their bed, ask them to put down their phone, and then ask them to put down their iPad, and then ask them to close their laptop, and then ask them to turn off Fortnite. At least that's the order I do it with Christian. Um, And then say, can we talk? Right, can we talk? Are you all right? Everything going okay? You seem down lately. Walk into your daughter's room, ask her to shut off her FaceTime and her Netflix and her music and put down her book and say, can we talk? You seem off lately. Is everything, everything okay? Your grades are dipping a little bit lately. Everything seem okay? You hardly have energy to get out of, the, get out of bed and get in the shower. Does everything seem okay? There's two or three friends you were always with. They're not around anymore. Is, every, is everything Okay. Learn to ask hard and uncomfortable questions when something seems different. This week on our podcast, and you need to understand, I'm a student of parenting much more than I'm a teacher of parenting, but Pastor Brandon asked me, what kind of questions do you ask your kids? And I told him, I'm still learning, but here's almost every week what I talk to my 17-year-old son about. Here's almost every week what Daniel and I talk to our 15-year-old daughter. Like We ask these kind of hard questions, and now they're okay. They're not embarrassing or taboo or shameful in our homes anymore. If you're a parent, I'd encourage you to listen to this week's podcast and maybe start asking some hard questions when things seem off. And then number four, be willing to research the activity and the relationships of your child. Be willing to research the activity and the relationships of your child. If your kids are of driving age or have friends of driving age, your kids should probably never be with a friend that you haven't vetted through social media. And your kids' friends' social media will tell you everything they need to know about them. Your student, if you have a teenager, your student should never stay all night at someone's house that you haven't met the parents and made sure their values are your values. Because after a decade in youth ministry, you would be shocked, or maybe not, at what goes on while the parents are upstairs in some homes. Not every home is like your home if you're trying to protect and put boundaries on your kids. So do some research, have some conversations. And look at the activity and relationships of your child or the person you're leading spiritually. Because here's the deal. 
If you will fight for your, spirit, your child's spiritual future, tomorrow they will have spiritual life. See, today's spiritual leadership leads to tomorrow's spiritual life. And today's sin leads to tomorrow's sorrow. I counsel not a lot of people, but some in marriage. And you know where most dysfunction in marriages traces back to? Something that happened between the ages of 15 and 20. We really almost always have to get back to high school to begin to get healthy. Today's sin always ends up being tomorrow's sorrow. So if we can lead spiritually today, our kids might have spiritual life tomorrow because our generation's spiritual leadership is the next generation's spiritual legacy. It's just the way it works. So we got to be proactive, not passive. Now, for those of you sitting out there, you're in your 50s, you're in your 60s, you're in your 70s. You have kids that are 30, 40, 50, and they've had a haircut. Samson's story actually ends with this verse. The verse we left off on, they took him, gouged out his eyes, made him grind and grain. The very next verse is this, but his hair began to grow back. Because God had another chance in store for him. And you may have kids that are 30, 40, 50. You think they're away from God forever. You may have kids in their late 20s. You think they're away from God forever. They've had their hair cut. God will let their hair grow back. And he'll give them another chance. So pray. Be proactive. Press in and lead. If you will do that, I believe God will move. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Samson and his family. But it's our family that we need to address, not his. We can't help his. Lord, they're gone. But ours is here. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over this room. For those of you who are watching online, before this message, you ask God to speak to you about your family. What did he say? What did God say to you about your family? What did God say to you about your friends? What did God say to you about passive Christianity versus proactive Christianity. Maybe you're here today and God has shown you that you're too passive in your parenting or your leadership. You're recommending but not restricting damaging areas in someone's life who you have authority over. You see someone you love dearly drifting, but you've not confronted it. You've thought about it. You've talked to others about it. You're really worried about it. You've just not said anything about it. You sense something's off, but you've not taken action by asking questions that will dig deeper. Don't let the people you lead and the people you love experience everything in life but their final haircut by trying to manage their struggles and their sin instead of just confronting it and being proactive. If you're in here today and there's someone in your life that you've been doing that to, you're like Manoah, you're like his wife, and you've kind of seen the struggle, the dysfunction, the sin, the drifting, but you're not sure what to do about it, so you've done nothing, and today God has said, speak up. I've let you be concerned so you can ask questions. I've let you be aware so you can take action. I've let you have a relationship with them so you can talk to them, not about them. If you have someone in your life like that, son or a daughter, husband or a wife, a teammate, 
a best friend, a co-worker, family member, will you pray for them right now? Just right where you are, you don't have to pray out loud. From your heart to heaven, would you just say, God, I'm concerned about so-and-so, but I've been passive in my concern. God, I'm aware they are not doing well, but I've not taken action yet. God, I've been talking to other people about what I should do, but I've never talked to them. Pray for that person. Ask God to help them. And then ask God to help you help them by being proactive. If you're a parent of somebody under the age of 18, this is a requirement, not a recommendation. It's why God put them in your family and it's why God is telling you this today. He knows that every child is made to push boundaries. And he trusts that you will protect them. So be proactive. If it's a friend or a neighbor, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a sibling, co-worker, a teammate, one of your players, just ask God to show you how to ask the right questions at the right time to help. Be proactive. And if you're here today and you're Samson, you listened to this message and you thought, boy, I wish my mom and dad wouldn't have let me walk into that vineyard. Maybe they knew better and didn't know how to lead strongly. Maybe they, maybe they didn't know. If you're here today and you're thinking, man, I wish my mom and dad would not have let me kick around that carcass. When I was 15, 16, 17, I have so much pain from that time in my life. If at some point in your adult life, you got a haircut, you just gave away everything God had meant to be your purpose. The good news for you is that your hair can begin to grow back. And God can redeem your sin, your hurt, your suffering. And he can even, where you are now, put you in a position to fulfill the purpose he created you for. But you've got to admit your hurt. You have to admit your brokenness. You have to ask for help. If you're not dead, God's not done. If you received your spiritual haircut years ago, but you're still here, it's because God has more for you. Proactively lead yourself. Come back. Begin to find and fulfill his purpose for you all over again. Our spiritual leadership will determine the spiritual legacy of the next generation. Because our leadership can lead to life. Or today's sin can lead to tomorrow's sorry. Sorrow. So God help us to be proactive and help us to make a difference so that our families can be stronger. We love you. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name today. Amen.